Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text is from Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 4, verse 4. Let's give careful attention as I read the first six verses. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass, through her casual harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As we look at it now, open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold its wonders and that we might turn fully to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> According to those who keep the statistics, there are six million automobile accidents every year in the United States. That's a lot of accidents. But do you know what is listed as the number one cause of automobile accidents? Distracted drivers. Let's think about that for a minute. If you are driving down the highway and you take your hands off the steering wheel, what happens? The car doesn't stop. It keeps going. And eventually it turns in some arbitrary direction and you either end up in the ditch or you hit something. A moving car obviously needs constant attention. You have to turn it when the big turns come. You have to make little micro turns just to keep it going straight. If you get distracted and pay attention to something else, well, the car gets off track and bad things happen. On its own, a moving car is going to turn its own way. And in that respect, may be kind of obvious there, that our lives bear a strong resemblance to driving an automobile. The road we're on, of course, is following and glorifying God. But we're constantly distracted by other things. We like to turn our own way. We think you know, that might get us something until we see we need to turn back to God. We need to repent and follow Him again. And we see this propensity to turn away from God demonstrated by Israel and Judah in many places throughout the Old Testament. 
Of course, one such place is in our passage today, in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah uses some form of the word turn in this passage over at least 15 times. Jeremiah is a prophet, and he's speaking to the nation of Judah. Now remember, Israel had her golden years during the time of King David and King Solomon. This is much later. At this point, Judah has turned away from God. She's forsaken the path that he clearly laid out for her. And Jeremiah has been called by God to confront Judah, to bring the people back, to turn them to God. And this this whole story that we see here, it's not just an interesting history lesson. It's for us, and we have much that we can learn from it. And if we do back up a little bit and see, how did Judah get here? Well, during she had those golden years during the, the reign of David and Solomon. During that time, the kingdom had spread far and wide. The, the nation was wealthy beyond belief, and all of the nations around them were serving them. It was a glorious time to be an Israelite. But when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became king, he didn't treat the people well. And suddenly, ten of the twelve tribes, they left. And the nation was split. Only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin were left. And all the other tribes went to the north. And they made a guy named Jeroboam their king. And from that point on, the northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And because Jeroboam didn't want the people of the northern kingdom, of his kingdom, to go back to the king in Judah, well, he set up temples and idols in the north so that they didn't need to go back to Jerusalem to worship. So right away, all the kingdoms of the north turned away from God. And they never had a good godly king from that point on. Over a period of about 200 years, God sent his prophets to Israel. Elijah and Elisha, Amos, Hosea. They all called the kings and the people, all from the northern kingdom, to to repent and turn back to God. But they never did. They were on their own course, and they weren't going to change that. So God raised up the Assyrians the nation of Assyria. Gradually, the Assyrians became the dominant nation throughout the entire Middle East. They defeated everyone. And they were ruthless and merciless as they did so. Israel tried to hold them off. But God was judging Israel. So Israel was completely defeated in 721 B.C. And beyond defeating them, The Assyrians deported all but the very poorest of Israel to place and scattered them places hundreds of miles away. So the ten tribes and the northern kingdom, they were gone. They were completely wiped out. So here we are now in the book of Jeremiah about 100 years later, about 100 years after Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom. Judah is still a nation. And throughout the whole time since David and Solomon, they've had a mixture of good kings and bad kings. 
Most recently, their kings were Manasseh and his son Ammon. And they were both wicked kings. In fact, Manasseh is credited with, both, with being the most wicked king of all. And he reigned for 55 years. So Israel has been steeped in wickedness and idolatry for decades. But the newest king is Josiah. He's credited with being the king who turned to the Lord with his whole heart, soul, and might more than any other king. He was only eight years old when he became king. But when he turned 18, they found the book of the law in the temple. They found it. That shows how off track they were. They didn't even know they had it. When Josiah heard it read, he tore his clothes in repentance and began sweeping reforms throughout Judah. He renewed the Passover and he got rid of all the idols, even in the high places where the people of Judah worshipped other gods. And it was during those years of Josiah that God called Jeremiah to be a prophet. Now, Jeremiah was also young, probably in his later teens. And you might think, well, with such a good godly king, they should be, things should be looking up. Everyone should be following God, right? You'd, you'd think that, but that's not the case. Jeremiah was a prophet for over 40 years. And during that whole time, he was calling Judah to repent and turn back to God. His constant message for Judah was to turn from idols, turn to God, but they wouldn't listen. And because of that, Jeremiah saw the complete fall of Judah and Jerusalem. As we look at what Jeremiah wrote here, we need to read it not just from the perspective of Jeremiah and the people of his day. The people of Judah, they were captured, and they were deported to Babylon, but they weren't wiped out like the northern kingdom was. Judah survived as a people in Babylon. And they had this book that Jeremiah wrote. How did they view what he wrote then? What would they have learned? Jeremiah's warnings were clearly before them. They had refused to listen, and judgment came just like Jeremiah said. And just like Judah, we have this book now to read as well. What do we learn from it? Well, let's begin in verse 6, looking at verses 6 through 11 there in chapter 3. In these verses, we are taken back to the time when Israel was still a nation. They were wandering far from God, but they were still a nation. And during that time, it was like Judah was sitting watching a play, but it was real. They watched as Israel turned away from God. They watched as Israel ignored all the warnings to turn back. Judah watched it all. And starting in verse 6, it says, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king. So God is speaking to Jeremiah. He says, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? Now, Israel was gone a hundred years ago. So, of course, Jeremiah didn't see it. 
but he was well aware of the history. She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. Now those, those high mountains, they were called the high places. That's where the temples and the idols were placed. Temples and idols of, of Baal and Asherah. Israel went there to worship those idols. So God is bringing to the foreground what Israel had done long ago. Let's continue as God speaks to Jeremiah in verse 7. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. That's when Israel was defeated and deported and destroyed by the Assyrians. Israel was destroyed because God divorced her. And then God continues, Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Judah had her own high places where where they went and worshipped the idols. In verse 9, So it came to pass, through her casual harlotry, that she, Israel, defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees, and yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. I remember, this is, this is during the reign of Josiah. He's the king who, who turned to God with his whole heart. He made reforms throughout the land. He tore down all of those high places in Judah. He reinstituted the Passover. He brought back God's word and all that it said. Now that's tremendous. Judah was following God once again. At least, that's, that's the way it looked. But as we see here, the people didn't turn their hearts fully to God. They only went through the motions. Their hearts were still with those idols that, Je that Josiah had torn down. And because of that, in verse 11, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. God had divorced Israel. And she was wiped out because of her idolatry. And now, God is saying that Israel was more righteous than Judah. Now, when the people of Judah heard that, not only would it have been a surprising thing to hear, but they would have been scandalized by such a comparison. What? Oh, we're the pure ones. Israel has been destroyed. And the few people left, they've intermarried with the pagans, and they have all sorts of things mixed in their religion. But we're the Jews. We have the temple of the Lord. Now, that kind of thinking goes all the way into the New Testament. Those poorest of the Israelites that were left by the Assyrians, they're the Samaritans. The Jews wouldn't even walk through the Samaritan city. But throughout this passage, God calls Israel backsliding, and he calls Judah treacherous. 
Backsliding Israel means defecting Israel, turnable Israel, one who turned away. But Judah is treacherous. Judah doesn't just blunder into evil, she plans for it. She knows about it ahead of time and chooses it. She sees the lessons from the northern kingdom and she ignores them to her own peril. Do you ever find yourself in that place? You know what God's word says. And yet, something happens and you lose your temper anyway. Or some pornography presents itself and you're just going to take one look. Or you're in a conversation and one in the group starts gossiping about someone else. And you don't stop it. You, you decide to go ahead and listen in. Each thing leads to something else, which leads to something else. We're, we're so quick to turn away from God and not heed what he says. And that's what God said to Jeremiah. Look what Israel did. And Judah is even worse. Then from verse 12 through verse 20, God tells Jeremiah to make all of this clear to Judah. And in that, he says some more very surprising things. And to understand the first surprising thing, we need to understand something in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. In verses 1 through 4, it says, If a man takes a wife, and then for some reason he divorces her, and then she marries another man, now if that second man divorces her, or he dies, the first man may not take her back. The law says that's an abomination and would bring sin on the land. And then let's also look right before our text today at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet, return to me, says the Lord. Israel had played the harlot with all kinds of idols. And God divorced her, and she was scattered and destroyed. But God says, return to me. Let's look at verse 12. God says to Jeremiah, Go and proclaim these words toward the north. It's, it's not to the north. It's not to Israel because Israel has been gone for 100 years. But go proclaim these words toward the north. So it's like his audience, Judah, is, is behind him. And he faces the north and he proclaims these words. He retells the story of Israel so that Judah sees and hears once again. Judah saw as Israel went after idols. Judah saw as the prophets warned Israel over and over again and called her back to God. And Judah saw as God divorced Israel and judgment finally fell and Israel was destroyed. The people of Judah 
then saw it all. And the people of Judah now know that history well. So these first words in in verse 12 are like a replay of what happened before Israel was destroyed. God said to Israel through the prophets in verse 12, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. In verse 14, it changes then. It's no longer what happened before. This is now. After Israel has been divorced and gone for a hundred years, what does God say now? Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord. For I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds, according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Even though God divorced Israel and she committed adultery with all sorts of idols, and she was scattered and destroyed, God is still calling her back. In spite of the divorce, in spite of what the law says, God says he's still married to Israel. And as scattered as she is, God will bring back one from here, two from there. And instead of the kings and priests that led them to idols, He will give them shepherds who will teach them the truth and lead them to Him. When you look at what the law said, that's surprising. God will take divorced, adulterous Israel back. Isn't that incredible? That's the heart of God. And it's, it's the heart of God toward you, too. You might be thinking, well, it's different for me. God may take others back, but I've gone too far. I've done it too many times, whatever it is. But God still says, return. Turn to me. I will take you back. And I will teach you my ways. Just return to me. Even on a personal level, that's the call of God. No matter what you've done, turn to Him. And then as it continues, there are more surprises. Look at verse 16. Then it shall come to pass... When you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord. So as he gathers one from here, two from there, pretty soon there's a bunch of people gathered back. And he says something strange. They will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. And that's a good thing. So God is going to bring them back into the land. And when they're back, no one is going to say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. That's what they used to say. 
That's what they've been saying ever since they had the ark. That's, that's the symbol of God's presence with them. That's what Judah says still right now. They have the ark in the temple of the one and only true God. No one can touch them. In fact, Josiah has restored things and we're doing all the right rituals. We're untouchable. Judah thought what happened to Israel is not going to happen to us because we have the ark of the covenant of the Lord. But God says, in the future, no one's going to say that. No one's even going to care about it. How can that be a good thing? That means the ark is going to disappear. And it won't ever be made again. What they know as the symbol of God's presence with them will be gone. How is that a good thing? Well, because in verse 17... It says, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. The ark being gone is a good thing because they won't need the symbol of God's presence anymore. God himself will be on his throne in their midst. Now, at that time, they didn't know what that would look like. They didn't know really what it meant, but today we know this is pointing to Jesus. He came in the flesh and he walked among us and he died and and was resurrected and then he ascended to the right hand of God. And we have his spirit living in us, so we have a taste of it. Yet, we also look to the future when he comes again with the new Jerusalem. When he sits on his throne among us permanently. And his people from all the nations will be gathered to him. And even Judah and Israel will be united again. And no one will have an evil heart that will turn away from the Lord. Now, isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you like to have it so that your heart never turns away from God because you delight in him and nothing can tempt you away? That's the future hope that we have in Christ when he returns. Jeremiah lays out that that whole message before Judah. That's the same message that Israel had hundreds of years ago through the earlier prophets. There's, There's this great warning of judgment. But there's also the great message of God's love and faithfulness. God will take backsliding Israel back and be married to her. God will still give to backsliding, unfaithful Israel His grace, mercy, and provision in a glorious future that's beyond imagination. The contrast between judgment and blessing 
it's, it's ridiculous. But Israel ignored all the blessings and the grace and took the judgment. And now as Jeremiah proclaims this toward the north, he's laying it out all again before Judah. Look what happened. Look at the path that you're on. It's death. It's the same path that your sister Israel took. And then, look at the amazing, loving God you have turned away from. Turn back. And then in verses 19 and 20, God shows even more of His heart by showing what He did for Israel. He says, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of the nations? God gave them the land of Canaan as a beautiful gift. And what does he expect? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. That's God's desire. That. That's what he did and what he expected. He treasured Israel and he put her in a beautiful land and provided all sorts of amazing blessings for her. And she was to be the nation through whom God worked to bless all others. And the relationship would be that of a loving father to his child. You shall call me my father and will not turn away from me. But what happened? Well, in verse 20, Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. That's the longing, loving heart of God and how he was treated. I mean, with that kind of treatment, what would you expect to happen? Not only judgment of the worst kind, but... That's it. It's over. I mean, that would seem appropriate. Yet in verses 21 through 25, we see again the heart of God. Because in those verses, he spells out a litany of what he wants to see happen. After all of the treachery, here's what should happen. Repentance. The path is still open to Israel. It says, a voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel. For they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. First, they must recognize how wrong and perverted were their ways on the high places. They should weep over how wrong it was to turn away from their loving and gracious God. And then in verse 22, return. You backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. In spite of what they had done, God says to return. And not only will he forgive them, but he will even heal their backslidings. And we'll see what that healing means as we look further. It continues with how Israel should respond here. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly, in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Israel had been deceived by the false gods. 
by all those gods, those idols in the temples and the high places. Now, we may not have physical temples with idols in them, but we still have our idols. We still have our things that capture our attention and our hearts so that we decide to pursue those things against what God says. And so then we turn away from God. The Israelites thought they could be saved from the armies by those idols. But they were deceived. Just like we are deceived by our idols. Any allurement from false gods is a lie. It's always a lie. Whether it's wealth, prosperity, pleasure, peace, control, success, fame, wisdom, protection, safety. What is it that you're chasing after? No matter what it is, no matter how good it is, apart from God, it's a lie. Nothing good can come from anywhere other than the one true God. As it says in James 1.17, He is the giver of all good gifts. So he calls us to repent of chasing that lie, of chasing idols, and instead turn to him. And he graciously says he will heal that deception so we no longer are deceived. In verse 24 says, For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Israel also needed to recognize the great loss that they had suffered from following false gods. And God will also heal their loss. False gods can make some amazing promises. But as we said, it's always a lie. And not only can they not deliver on those promises, they will devour anything truly good. And finally, they devour the worshiper. You might think you'll, you'll gain control of your life or you'll get acceptance or even love by, by lying or, or seeking out pornography or cheating or, or stealing or gossiping. In some way, you take matters into your own hands and go after what you want in your way. But at some point, it's guaranteed you'll find that you have lost. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew 16, verse 26. He says, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In the end, that's what every idol is after, your soul. And you think, well, I'm not going to give my soul away. All right, nobody wakes up one morning and says, you know, I think I'll give away my soul today. You know, that, that's just not what happens. Instead, it happens bit by bit as you pursue things that, that turn you away from God. And as you leave aside things that draw you toward God. Things like worship and His people and His Word. 
And verse 25 continues, showing what this repentance should look like. It says, we lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Now the word shame was used up in verse 24 in here. It's also used in other places in Jeremiah as another name for Baal. It's a very fitting name for a false god, isn't it? Shame. Israel has been greatly shamed by turning to Baal and the other gods. And that's, that's what false gods do. They give you shame. Yet no matter what your shame is, God will heal your shame. And so far, this sounds like a pretty solid repentance, doesn't it? In, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, God takes it even further. He says, if you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. <clears throat> this is the fourth time that we've seen this call to, to turn or to return to God. It's repeated over and over, and the wording in Hebrew is a little strange to our ears. So it's translated so that it makes sense in English. But more directly, it might be, turn, O turning one. So if you will turn, O turning one, turn to me. What does this turning look like? Well, it says the abominations, the idols will be out of God's sight. So yes, they'll be removed from the high places. There won't be any temples or statues there. But, but where does God see? <coughs> Excuse me. Not just up on the hills. Remember, when Samuel was looking for the next king after Saul, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, God said, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So it says, If you will put away your abominations, your idols, out of my sight. To be out of God's sight, they have to be out of your heart as well. Then God makes the promise, You shall not be moved. You won't be deceived by the idols. You won't suffer loss <clears throat> from the idols. <clears throat> and you won't be shamed by the idols. Instead, you'll stand before God, which is the only place of safety. And when the idols are gone, even from their hearts, verse 2 says, they shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. Whenever there was something very important happening, they would invoke the most valued, highest thing they could think of. They used to swear in the name of Baal. But if they repent and turn to God fully, then they will invoke the name of the one and only true God. It is He that lives, and that will be true and right. Now, all of that, that's the kind of repentance 
that God wants to see. Repentance that is true all the way to the heart. And if that was done, if repentance like that happened, you would think God would say, then I will spare you of my judgment. But it's like he skips over that to something even more important. At the end of verse 2, it says, The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. If Israel repents and turns to God, yes, they will be spared his judgment. But beyond that, they will fulfill what they were originally supposed to do. All the nations were supposed to be blessed through Israel. But instead of blessing the nations, Israel had become like one of them. So God had Jeremiah proclaim all of that toward the north, toward where Israel used to be before she was destroyed. And he did that so Judah could see and hear all over again. So then there would be no doubt. This is what happened to Israel. And this is why it happened. Learn from that lesson. Then God has Jeremiah turn directly to Judah in Jerusalem in verses 3 and 4. And he speaks to them with two metaphors. Now the first one is one that many here might be familiar with. It says, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. A fallow ground is ground that normally is used for agricultural purposes, but it has not been used for a long time. And you can find places like that around here, if you look around a bit. If it was tilled before, the first thing to come are a whole bunch of weeds. Then wild grasses will come, along with buckbrush, brambles, green briars, wild roses, then the cedar trees, and the honey locust trees, and the hedge trees. For those of you not familiar with all of those, I've just described a nightmare of a piece of ground. You'd have a hard time even walking through it. There are so many thorns. But that's what fallow ground looks like after several years. Can you imagine going in there and spreading out your garden seeds and expecting them to grow? They wouldn't have a chance. Jeremiah is using the same metaphor here that Hosea used back when he prophesied to Israel. In Hosea 10, 12. Break up your fallow ground. It's a picture of their hearts. Their hearts are supposed to be good ground that has been tilled and cared for. A place where God's word has been sown so that it produces a hundredfold harvest. But they let the weeds and the brambles, and the thorns take over as they pursue other things other than God and His Word. Is your heart fallow ground? Have you let weeds and thorns grow up? Or is it well tilled? Is it planted with God's Word? Do you spend time listening to, reading, studying God's Word and sowing it in your heart and in the hearts of your children? That was his first metaphor. The second metaphor is in verse 4. It 
It says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. Now, these were the men of Judah. If anyone was circumcised, they were. That was part of their identity. But God directs it to what is really meant. Take away the foreskins of your hearts. The foreskin is a symbol of fallen man's rebellion toward God. And its removal was the sign of initiation in to the covenant people of God. The initiation into those who would be his, who would love and follow him. So he's saying, even at this point, after all the treachery, begin again. Repent. Circumcise your hearts. Till the ground of your hearts and plant God's word there. Otherwise, as he says in the end of verse 4, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. This passage in Jeremiah teaches us so much about the heart of God, about our own hearts, and about repentance. God shows that he is just. Those who turn from God like Israel and then like Judah, they do not escape. Even when Judah appeared to be following God, but it was only in pretense, not from the heart, well, God knew. And they were called to turn to him with their whole heart, but they didn't. And they were rightly judged. God knows all, even the innermost thoughts of your heart. Nothing can be hidden from Him. So turn to Him with your whole heart and don't try to hide anything. Now we also here learn about our hearts. We are turning ones. We have a strong and constant inclination to turn away from God. Just like a car we'll turn into the ditch, we turn to all kinds of things that we think might get us something. But they're lies. So we do turn away. But when we do, we must turn back. We must repent and pray for God to work in us and strengthen us. Then we also see here how God views our turning away. It's like a wife who has been deeply loved and given everything by her husband. But then she forsakes him and commits adultery over and over again like a prostitute. Judgment is the only thing that makes sense. But then we see the amazing, faithful, loving heart of our God. If only we turn back to him. If we'll turn away from whatever has turned us away from Him, if we'll turn back to Him truly from our heart, then He will take us back. And not only will He take us back, but He'll heal our deception and our loss and our shame. And He will love us as He loves His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Taking us back like that It makes no sense. It would make much more sense if he would cast us away forever. But instead, he forgives us through the death of his own son and makes us his. 
That's what kind of God the one and only true God is. Maybe there, there are some here who have never turned to God in that way. You've never truly admitted that in your heart, you are your own God. Or maybe you did turn to Him at one time, but you've turned away and that's where you've been for a long time. In either of those places, judgment awaits. You need to turn to Him while you still can. Now, most of us have turned, have had to turn from our ways to God, not just once, but many times. And that's what Jeremiah is talking about. We're turning ones. Sadly, we turn away often. We must repent and turn back just as often. And that's not just coming here on Sunday and, and coming and confessing our sins in worship. No, that's as soon as we realize that you've gossiped or lost your temper, or you've slandered someone, or you've become bitter about something, as soon as you realize your sin, turn back to God. Confess that sin. Thank Him for His gracious love. Pray for His work in you that you would grow. Just like driving a car requires constant attention, so does following God. We must constantly recognize the times that we turn away and we must repent and turn back. Turn your trust to your gracious, loving God. Give your constant attention to getting to know God more and more so that you trust Him and so that you follow Him in everything. Now, hopefully, every time you drive a car, now you'll think of this. Respond to God's call now and throughout every day as He says, Turn, O turning one, to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess how easily we turn aside from You and Your Word. Forgive us and open our eyes to the ugliness of our idolatry. Give us this turning, this returning, this repentance that brings us back to you because you are our God. You are perfectly holy and wise and good. You are our maker as well as our judge. You do know what's best and you can be trusted. So turn us daily and heal us and heal our land and make us faithful in our love for you and in our walk with you so that thou, those around us may know you through us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>